Hey, this is Dave Ryder from New Spring Church here in beautiful Perth, Western Australia. Really praying that this message is going to help you. If you'd like some more information about our story, just head to newspring.org.au. Good morning. How are we? Excellent. It's good to be here. It's been a big week. Who feels like Easter was way longer than a week ago? It's just like, oh, it's been a week and now it's not Easter anymore. Well, it is Easter still, but, you know, we're still in the season. But it doesn't feel like that. So those of you who don't know me, my name is Brett. Um, it's good to see you here. Um, wanted to add my welcome to Dave's. Um, so this morning... Thanks, guys. Sorry. Um, well, two weeks ago, so obviously last week was Easter, the week before that, um, I spoke, and does anyone remember the name of the guy I spoke about from the Old Testament? Ooh. Obed-Edom. There you go. Yeah, no one's heard of him, and even though I speak about him, no one remembers him. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Obed-Edom. Um, so part of Obed-Edom's story that we spoke about and also the calling of the first four disciples um, with Jesus was about them pursuing the presence of the Lord. That Obed-Edom was just some guy on a street somewhere during the procession of the Ark of the Covenant going back to Jerusalem. And um, they needed a place to store the ark and Obed-Edom had the presence of the Lord in his house for three months and decided, you know what, I want more of that and off he went. Um, so this week um, we're going to look at another Old Testament story. Um, in fact, we're going to look at sort of two side by side. And the interesting thing about the two stories that we're going to look at this morning is they often aren't necessarily thought of as being related to each other at all, even though they almost sit side by side in the Bible. Because there seems like there's this almost tyranny of time and distance between them both that they're actually not related at all. Um, so I had initially planned to sort of speak about something else this morning in relation to one of those stories, but realised I couldn't ignore where the text was taking me. So that's where we're going this morning. But who here likes studying history? Anybody? Yeah. Few people? I love studying history. History was my favourite subject in high school. It's almost the only one I passed. Um, and I geared myself up to be an accountant, and who wants to be that? But no, no offence to the accountants. Um, but it was definitely not for me, even though I do the church books. Um, <laughs> And it's fine. <laughs> we have, we have, we've got a couple of backups so that, that's, that make sure I don't make any problems, any mistakes. Um, and then after Marnie and I got married, um, we went over, we lived in Bali for a little while and felt very strongly when we were coming home. We thought that we were going to step into some um, sort of mission staff. That didn't go very well. And I've told that story before, so I don't need to go into detail here. And when we, went, we came back to Perth, we decided, I decided, well, I felt God really called me to go back to study. And it was definitely, you need to go back to Bible college. And I went, yeah, I don't want to. 
it was honest. I didn't know why I wanted to go. I, did, I just didn't want to go back. Um, and God and I, I wasn't on very good terms with him. I was very disappointed with the, the whole mission thing not working out. Hey, we're all human. So in a bit of rebellion, I actually applied and got accepted to study an undergrad degree of history at UWA. And I also got into Bible college at the same time. And I went, ooh, what do I choose? And Marnie very gently but firmly reminded me that we were coming back to go back to Bible college. Um, and during my study, one of my favorite subjects, obviously, was church history and, bi and biblical history. And I don't know, those of you who have studied, you're sort of not ready to go back into the world when study's over. You sort of want to keep going. Um, and so I'd had several conversations with one of my lecturers about continuing study at the sort of the master's level doing church history. Um, but when we started, when I started studying, we had one young child. And when I finished studying, we had two older children because it took me that long. And I was reminded that family, you have responsibility, so you can't study forever and you can't keep racking up a debt. So I went to work. But I... I love the study of history. And the, the, one of the reasons why I love studying history, especially biblical history, is that it puts skin and bone on stories that can potentially just be sort of this theoretical sort of stuff. That it's like, oh, yeah, we can break down someone's life into a whole bunch of sort of, you know, dot points. And we forget that these were real people. And one of the things that I like about it is that when you start to understand the background and the people, it gives it more beef. And it brings it into so much better, sharper focus and context. And that we're able to then potentially not only understand the person, but understand who God is in the midst of that story, because we've got to remember the people in the Bible are real. They're flesh and bone people, but the thing is, the Bible isn't about them. They are a part of a really important story, just as we all are. But the story of the Bible is not about the people. It's not about Abraham. It's not about David. It's about God. And so when we start to look at the people in this story, in this book, that are, they lived thousands of years ago in a context that we don't understand, but when we start to understand them in the context of the greater story, which is God's story, it helps us put ourselves in there. That's why I love studying biblical history. And so this morning, I want to talk to us about, or to you, about a couple of stories from Genesis. Um... And hopefully, in bringing out some of the history and context of those stories, it makes them richer for us, which will enable us to then understand who we are in the context of their story and what God is saying to us about it as well. So this morning, we have to actually start almost at the beginning. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. So it says in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, I'm not going to read it verbatim, but it said that the law saw that there was wickedness or saw the wickedness of humanity and that it was widespread over the earth. Can you imagine God saying that about you? And that he regretted that he made man. 
Can you imagine that? And that he declared that he was going to wipe mankind off the face of the earth. Now, as a consequence to that declaration, um, Yahweh raises Noah up and declares that he needs to build an ark. And not the same ark as I was talking about two weeks ago. This is actually a boat. And um, in order that for Noah and his family were going, and obviously all the little animals, two by two, we all know the song, and that they would survive his judgment. And so when the flood happens, obviously the flood eventually recedes and Noah eventually is able to exit the ark and um, obviously all the animals. And they say that it's somewhere near sort of modern Turkey that the, the, the ark landed. So Yahweh makes a promise that he'll never kill everything again via a flood. And he does that, though, with the declaration still that the inclination of the human heart is still exceedingly evil. So the flood actually hadn't changed the human heart. But Noah blesses, so God blesses Noah and his sons, and he commands them to do one thing. He commands them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Genesis chapter 9, verse 1. The thing is, their command from God to scatter and replenish the earth actually was the original plan from Eden. We go back to Genesis chapter 1, verses 28. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky and every creature that crawls on the earth. So he had a one command. After this, we're then given a record of Noah's family line. And in that record, we are, they are told, or we are told that... They settle in the land of Shinar, which came to known as Babylonia. Now remember, they were told to scatter and to fill. And the first thing that Noah did, it says that he was a man of the earth and he built a vineyard. He settled. Genesis chapter 9 verse 20. After we find out this about Noah, we're then given another table of, of, my Bible calls it a table of nations. And in that, um, it's a whole bunch of just lists, names. Who skips, when we get to a genealogy section in the Bible, who skips it? Yeah, okay. <laughs> We're all in the same boat. Um, but one of his descendants is a guy called Nimrod. And Nimrod is highlighted saying that he became powerful in the land. And the Bible says that he was a powerful hunter in the sight of the Lord. Now, I read several accounts of this to make sure I wasn't reading an outlier. But pretty much all of the descriptions of Nimrod I read described him in a negative sense. That his actions were an affront to the Lord, 
that Nimrod was actually a powerful hunter in defiance of God. So when we start to hear, and so some of the accounts that I read, obviously it's all hooked up into Jewish tradition, was that Nimrod was a hunter in defiance of God because he actually hunted people. Now, I don't know if that's true or not. That's a part of Jewish tradition. But you can see that he probably wasn't a very nice guy. So he builds a kingdom. Remember, told to scatter. But Nimrod builds a kingdom, which included several cities. One of them was Babylon. Now, this is a, obviously, like I said, it's mixed with both Jewish and Christian, Christian tradition. But it is said that Nimrod was the first tyrant. And the Babylonian Talmud states that Nimrod stirred up the whole world to rebel against God's sovereignty. So we've had a flood. And God's gone, mm, it's not working out and I really regret making you. Let's start again. Go out and fill the earth like I told you the first time. And within several generations... They're acting in defiance against God still. Now, the thing is, knowing this helps us understand what I'm about to say. Who's read the Tower of Babel story and gone, I don't understand why God judged them? Like, what's up with that? They just built a building. Why was that bad? The ancient historian Josephus wrote this of Nimrod. He said he would be revenged on God if he should have a mind to drown the world again. For that, he would build a tower too high for the waters to be able to reach, and that he would avenge himself on God for destroying their forefathers. So according to Josephus... Nimrod ordered the Tower of Babel to be constructed in order to withstand another worldwide flood. It was an attempt to prevent the acts of God, and they tried by their own hands to create their own ark of salvation, their own fortress. Let's briefly read. Just take a drink. Genesis chapter 11, starting at verse 1. The whole earth had the same language and vocabulary. As people migrated from the east, they found a valley in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let us make oven-fired bricks. They used brick for stone and asphalt for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the sky. Let us make a name for ourselves Otherwise, we'll be scattered throughout the earth. Then the Lord came down to look over the city and the tower that the humans were building. The Lord said, if they have begun to do this as one people, all having the same language, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So from there, the Lord scattered them throughout the earth and they stopped building the city. Therefore, it is called Babylon. For there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered them throughout the earth. So what was the Tower of Babel and what was its significance? 
Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 and 2 tells us that everyone spoke the same language and that they were coming from everywhere to settle in Shinar, to settle in the city, to see the tower. Now, yet again, remember, God had told them, instructed mankind to go out and fill the uninhabited earth, to explore, to subdue his splendid creation. However, instead of migrating in several different directions, most of them, not all, most of them determined that they would stick together and organise themselves into a single city, directly contravening God's commandment. Now, one question surrounds all of this is, well, could this be done out of ignorance? It's been several generations between Noah and now Nimrod. Could they have simply forgotten? Maybe. We're pretty short-remembered people. Now, the dating is a bit fluid. But the rebellion at Babel, so the building of the Tower of Babel, could have occurred any time between about 130 and 340 years after the flood. Now, if you were to have a look at the genealogy from Noah through to Abram and his descendants, you will know that they lived a really long time. The Bible tells us that Abraham, or that Noah lived for 950 years. I don't know how. There are several different theories on that, depending on the, how sin entered the world. Um, early on in Genesis, it tells us that the sons of God came down and, had, like, and, and slept with human women. Maybe it was that. I don't know if anybody else here knows. I don't know. 950 years sends a lot of time in a desert. I don't know. Anyway, but even if the, the Tower of Babel was built 340 years after the flood, Noah was still alive. Shem was too, one of Noah's sons. And the thing is, Noah and his sons were eyewitnesses to the rebellion that caused the flood in the first place. And now after the flood has receded, he's now an eyewitness to another rebellion against God. So the idea that they could go, oh, we didn't know. It's like the, very, the one person that survived the last judgment is still alive. The Tower of Babel was a blatant act of defiance against God, against his law, against his authority. So what was the Tower of Babel? Now, I used to picture this like just massive structure, like almost like the Burj Khalifa, like 850 metres tall and, you know, like all nice and fancy. Um, but it probably looked more like this, if you could put that up. So that is a ziggurat. Don't worry, I'd never heard of one before I started looking at this too. So this one is called the ziggurat of Ur, U-R. It was found in Iraq, um, and it was actually restored by Saddam Hussein. Um, now, there would normally be a temple on top. You can obviously see that there's nothing there at the moment, or 
ever again. But this is about 64 metres wide by about 45 metres deep, and it's about 30 metres tall. Obviously, if there was a structure on top of that, it would be slightly taller. Now, that doesn't seem big by today's standards. Now, and these, these were all over the place in the ancient Near East, so this isn't the only one, but there were several of them. It may not have looked like this, but most scholars say it was something like that. But when you start to think about the structures that they were building back then, this is a beefy boy. This is a big building. And it would be something that you could see from a long way away. Now, like I said, I'm not a ziggurat expert by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but the purpose of a ziggurat was to elevate either the priest or the priestess, depending on if you were serving a god or a goddess, above the general population to elevate you because the gods were up there somewhere. And so what they wanted to do was to lessen the distance between you and the gods. And once that was accomplished, what they would then expect was that the God would then come down and dwell in the temple that was on top, usually expected to dwell in one of their statues. And so this can also give us a better picture of why God was so, Yahweh was so upset that they were building this in Babel. He wasn't upset simply that they were building a big building. He was upset because humanity still wasn't listening. They were told to scatter by God and they built a city and a tower to avoid doing exactly that. And not only that, they were trying to control God. They were trying to make him deal with them on their own terms. And the thing is, they wanted to make their own name great. It wasn't to honour God. If we make our name great, we build this big stonking building, people will come and will be able to defy God. So God responds. And he obviously confuses their language. And it has two results. The first one is that they would scatter. Funny that, because that's potentially what he wanted in the first place. And the second one was that they would stop building the city. And the reason why that was is because they were doing it as an act of defiance. And then that's where the story almost ends. And then we get a whole bunch more genealogy um, from um, Shem to Abram. And that's why when we start to think about Abram, who became Abraham, that these stories aren't related. Because it's like several generations. And you go, well, they can't be related. There's so much time and distance, even though they almost sit side by side in the Bible. Um, so Abram means the father is exalted. And Abraham means the father of a multitude. When God um, made his... Uh, I've just forgotten the word. Covenant. covenant. Thank you, Dave. When God made his covenant with Abraham, he changed his name. So for the sake of, I'm just going to call him Abraham, even though he's technically Abram in this, in this story. So let's read 
Genesis chapter 12, starting at verse 1. The Lord said to Abram, Go out from your land, your relatives and your father's house, to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went out as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abraham was, Abram was 75 years old when he left Haram. There's a couple of really interesting things in this. One is that Joshua chapter 24 verse 2 tells us that Abram, didn't, Abram and his family didn't worship Yahweh. So he's a direct descendant of Noah. Noah is still alive. Shem is still alive. But it says that Abraham's family did not worship Yahweh. I didn't deep dive into that. That's weeks and weeks of reading and work. So I had to get ready for this. So Abraham was Noah's... I'll just... I'll count these just to make sure, was his great, 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 great grandson. Jewish tradition tells us that Noah, Shem, and Abram lived together for 39 years. And because Shem lived so long, he was still alive when Isaac and Jacob were alive. Tradition says that Shem taught Isaac and Jacob in the ways of the Lord. So anyway, I find that really interesting. Anyway, back to Genesis 12. So the thing is, Abraham is instructed to take drastic action. Now, we don't really think of it as that. To separate himself from his roots so that a new beginning could take place. Yahweh asked Abraham to leave his land, his family, and his inheritance, which was his father's household. And he promised him in return his own land, his own family, and an inheritance, which was his blessing. Now, we need to remember that in those days, family was paramount. Whether it was a family unit or an extended household, they operated as the individual's clan or tribe. They were important for safety. They were important for security, both physically and financially. And I read one account that to be separated from family was to be a punishment. One of the things I read was that if you got accused and convicted of murder, the punishment was to send you out. So it wasn't a blessing to be separated. Now, obviously, Abraham's story develops beyond this call. Abraham leaves. God establishes a covenant with him. Now, Abraham makes a ton of mistakes, like a ton. Um, there's strife. There's blessing. Um, and the Bible in Genesis chapter 25 tells us that Abraham dies old and content. And the thing is, I want to pause here and look at some of the differences that are highlighted between what happened at the Tower of Babel and Abraham's call and response. So the first difference between the two 
is trust. Now, we learn from the story that the tower builders believed in their own skill and cleverness. They wanted to build a tower that achieved significance and security in a way that usurped God's authority. In contrast, God tells Abraham to leave everything. And Abraham puts his trust in God, in his call, in his guidance. Second difference is motive. The tower builders sought to make a name for themselves. They wanted to achieve greatness and pursue fame on their own terms. Who here remembers all the names of the builders of the Tower of Babel? Not so famous. On the other hand, Abraham actually became famous. I mean, he's the patriarch of three major religions in this world. But it wasn't of his own doing. God made Abraham famous, but it wasn't for his own sake. It was so all the families on earth shall be blessed. The builders of the tower built it against heaven and built cities and statues as memorials to man. When we look back at the story of both Noah and of Abram, when they have an interaction with God, the first thing they both do is build an altar. That this is a holy place where I had an interaction with God. And I'm not building an altar to make my name great. I'm, having, I'm building this altar to glorify the Lord. Their first reaction wasn't self. Their first reaction was, God has interacted with me. How do I honor him? The place is holy. Let's mark it. The third difference was willingness. The command of God was to scatter and multiply and fill the earth. Genesis chapter 11 verse 4 tells us that the tower builders were scared and that they, would, that, that, that they were scared that they would be scattered throughout the earth and they created their project out of fear and attempted to huddle behind their walls. Now they were creative technologically and technologically innovative but they rejected God's purpose to fill the earth. In contrast, Deuteronomy chapter 25 or 26 verse 5 tells, uh, calls Abraham a wandering Aramean. He doesn't settle into a fixed address. Hebrews 11 chapter 8 says this about him. By faith, when God called him to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went even though he did not know where he was going. Abraham was willing to go, even though he didn't know where he was going. Who here wants the call of God on their lives, but wants to know every step that you have to take to get to your destination? I want the safety, God. Don't make me step out in faith. Tell me where I'm going. The problem is, the destination where you're going, you're probably not ready for to hear it now. Um, we took a step of faith years ago 
and it led me here. But 12 years ago, 13 years ago, if you'd have told me I was ever going to work in a church, I would have run for the hills. I never wanted to work in a church. I never wanted to be a pastor. But over years of God's grace and his working in my life, gradual steps. I remember I used to pray. It's like, why am I doing this? Like before I started working here, what, what am I doing? Where does this lead? Just show me just, just a little bit. Nah. You're where you want, I want you to be. Be faithful in that and walk in the light of my steps. That's all I got for years. Are you willing to step out in faith not knowing where you're going? And the thing is, people go, I'm going to wait until God shows me. And the thing is, you can't steer a stationary bike. You've got to be moving. Abraham's life was inherently God-centered. And he had to depend on God's word and God's guidance. The fourth difference between the two stories was openness. The tower builders closed themselves off in a city and a guarded fortress. Let's huddle here so we're safe. Shake our fists at God. Abraham, on the other hand, was willing to let God lead him into new relationships. Abraham trusted God's promise that his family would grow into a great nation. Hebrews, we've already read Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8. This is Hebrews 9, uh, chapter 11, verse 9. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. Genesis chapter 21 and 23 tells us of incidents where Abraham interacts with the local population. You've got to remember, he's a foreigner in a foreign land. And when you, in those days, when you saw a foreigner in a foreign land, they were a threat. Because it wasn't just him and like his wife. He had a lot of people and a lot of slaves. He was quite a rich man. But the thing is, when he has these interactions with these local population, he had good relationships with them. They respected and honoured him. And in, in, in a time when foreigners, like I said, were potential threats, this is actually quite remarkable. The grace of God was on his life. And the fifth difference was perspective. The tower builders had a short-term perspective. They were about their immediate concerns, their immediate fame, their immediate happiness, their immediate safety. They actually didn't think about how their project would affect future generations. When we read Genesis chapter 11, verse 6 of God's response, the Lord said, if they have begun to do this as one, all having the same language, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. What they're doing had clear and obvious negative outcomes. And God stopped them. Because their perspective was short. In contrast, Abraham was blessed with the patience to take a long-term view. Hebrews chapter 11 again. So verse 
8 tells us that Abraham obeyed God and went, even though he didn't know where he was going. Then verse 9 tells us that the result of this obedience was that he lived in a foreign land like a stranger. And then verse 10 goes on to say this. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. The promises that God gave to Abraham were not to be realized in his time, but in his offspring. And the thing is, Paul in Galatians chapter 3 verse 19 tells us that the offspring being spoken about is Jesus. And not only that, Matthew chapter 24 tells us that it won't be fulfilled completely until Christ returns. So the generation that was promised, so the promise that Abraham received not only was not realized in his lifetime, it still isn't realized fully yet. Christ has come, Christ has risen, but until Christ returns, the full promise of the covenant with Abraham hasn't been realized yet. We're still children of the promise. How amazing is that? We get to partake in this. And the thing is, the details of these stories, well, our stories, are obviously going to look different from Abraham's. Who's a goat herder here, anybody? No? Anyone live in the desert? No? Anyone have massive amounts of money and slaves? No? Okay. Right. Anyone live to 175? No. Okay. Um, and those who obviously built the tower, we, we, their lives are so different from ours and so far in the past that we actually can't relate to them. I get that. But their attitudes is something that we can learn from. A couple of questions. Who do we put our trust in? Do you rely on your own ingenuity and skill or the ingenuity and skill of humanity? Or do you put your reliance in trust in the Lord to guide you? Another question is, do you seek to do things to make yourselves look good? Or do we do things and live lives that honour God and glorify his name? It's a tough one. Another question. Do we lay our intentions aside and our agendas and be willing to go where God leads us? Or do we think that it's God's role to put his agenda aside for us, for our wants, for our needs, for our comfort and happiness? Is that what God's job is? Because every, pretty much every single prayer, if you're not praying for somebody else, your prayer for yourself is, God, help me. Dot, dot, dot. And they're not bad prayers. They're okay. But it's actually not God's job to satisfy our needs. That's not why he's God. Another question. Do we live lives that are open to new possibilities and new people? 
regardless of if they're Christian or not? Or do we hide in our cloistered little holy huddle, our little Christian ghettos, scared of the world about how corrupt and defiling it is? Or do we understand that we are actually the light that the world needs? That darkness doesn't overcome darkness. That we actually have to go out, get dirty a bit, but come back to the source of life and wash off. That's the call of a Christian. Do we, another question, do we live lives that see the world from a biblical perspective? That it's not all about us and our immediate needs. But it's about what God is doing. Are you okay with the fact that you might not see the fruit of your labor in your lifetime? Is it okay that the legacy you leave will be known by nobody but God? You know, they say that, you know, the sum of someone's life is the, of the two dates on a gravestone and their life actually is the dash in between. Are you okay that the only person who knows the significance of that dash is God and no one else because you've actually lived for Him? Genesis chapter 17 verse 1. God declares to Abraham that he alone is God Almighty. And he calls Abraham and his descendants to live in his presence and to live blameless. Abraham's descendants are called to seek out the face of the Lord and to live holy lives before him. That's God's wish for your life. That's God's wish for my life. To seek the face of the Lord and to live holy lives before him. And if we do that, it's a life well lived. Let us pray.